probably the key things that I would, would remind myself of is that time really flies and establishing solid foundations for the business up front and taking the time to do that intentionally will always yield dividends, even though you're, you're feeling under pressure to move and to grow. Welcome to Startup Health Now, the podcast where we celebrate the entrepreneurs and innovators reimagining the future of health. Toyin Ajayi co-founded CityBlock Health in 2017 with the goal of meeting patients where they are. CityBlock Health, which joined Startup Health in 2019, provides patients with 24-7 support and care that is affordable and fits their complex needs. Their mission is not just to improve quality of care, but to improve the health of whole communities. In this conversation, Toyin, who stepped into the role of CEO this year, shares how their high-touch care concept adapted to COVID. She also explains how their unique model has specialists collaborating on patient care plans and gives some hard-earned leadership advice to founders. Let's get into the conversation. Dr. Ajayi, thanks for joining us today for this fireside chat. Thanks for having me, Logan. So I think people can get uh, distracted by the big fundraise headlines and the valuations and end up not seeing past a company's mission statement. And so, as I mentioned, we know that CityBlock uh, works to address the health needs of low-income communities, communities that have been overlooked uh, by other health systems. Um, but let's level set and give you a chance to explain exactly what CityBlock is, what the care model is, and how you're deploying it today. Sure. Um, so thank you again for having us. Um, uh, so CityBlock is a value-based provider um, that's rooted in community-based um, primary care, behavioral health, and social care. We primarily serve Medicaid and duly eligible populations, so in- individuals with the most complex needs in the healthcare ecosystem, folks who are most likely to kind of fall through the cracks and get left behind by the frustrating, confusing existing healthcare system, um, and, and folks who have the, like, the most to lose from the deficits of our, of our existing sort of status quo. Um, we uh, partner with managed care organizations um, in geographies where they have significant um, concentrations of individuals with these complex needs who are living with sequelae of poverty. And we take financial risk and provide care in the community that drives health outcomes that are improved off of baseline, reduces acute utilization by, um, by proactively and in a more cost-effective way, bringing care to people in their homes and, um, and improves overall health quality and, and, and engagement. Um, we, we now operate in, in five markets um, across the Northeast, coming further down into the, the Mid-Atlantic region. We're continuing to expand and grow. Um, but uh, but our, our sort of overall thesis, and, and, and we're proving out the thesis, is, is that there's a sustainable business case for delivering high-quality, personalized, um, integrated care that meets people where they are and avoids the, the, the needless morbidity, illness, and utilization that comes from unmet healthcare needs, particularly in low-income populations. I wonder if we could get into any details around some of those strategies. You talked about personalization, personalized care. You talked about integrated care. And I know you've put a lot of time and energy into figuring out what does that really look like uh, patient by patient. So what are some of the actual strategies you've used uh, to accomplish those goals? And the first thing is about engagement. So um, when you look at the data, this is pre-pandemic. It's much, much worse post-pandemic, right? When you look at um, individuals with the most significant healthcare needs, people with multiple chronic conditions, 
people struggling with mental health or addiction, people with high utilization patterns of the emergency room and the, the hospital setting. Um, very few of them, typically on the order of about 50%, have meaningful primary care relationships that you can see in the data. And by that, I mean that they've seen the same doctor or the same advanced practice clinician in a practice more than once in the pre preceding 12 months. It's a real relationship. And when you think about that, when you think this person's struggling with diabetes and high blood pressure and heart failure, they were in the hospital three times last year, the threshold of saying, did you see a doctor in the primary care setting in at least once in the prior 12 months, ideally two or three times, and it was the same person, and maybe it's the person you actually have a relationship with. Um, very few people actually have that, can say that. Um, and they're using, and they're sort of almost defaulting to the acute system um, because there's such so many barriers to accessing care, transportation, childcare, um, uh, the telephone to make an appointment, sit on the, sit on the phone and reschedule, um, you know, the, the, the cash that there's effectively out of pocket spending um, in, in the form of lost wages for the day they took off to go see the doctor. There's so many barriers to accessing a healthcare system that for many people doesn't feel like it meets their needs. Because ultimately when you get in front of the clinician, you get 10 minutes and maybe they're distracted with the EHR or with something else. And you're not even able to begin to tell your story. And so we focus very much on, on, on bridging the access gap, not in the traditional way. We're not building more clinics and thinking that's somehow going to solve the problem. We're not giving everybody an app in the app store and pushing out, you know, text messages and thinking that's going to solve the problem. We're actually going to people, finding them, um, be it in a shelter, on a park bench, on a street corner, or in their home, and ensuring that they have a trusted relationship that is their entry point into the care model that we can then provide primary care and mental health and social services around and address the social, the, the social barriers to them accessing care on their own terms. That's one of the key pieces of the model is, is that relationship, that engagement model, that trust-based um, unlock that enables people to kind of access services that they're entitled to that are there for them that would make a difference for them, but they have historically not been able to address and to access. The second piece is, is around integration of care services at the point of need. So physical health and behavioral health, and making sure that people really do um, uh, we receive a holistic experience of care, which for many is a novel experience, right? Most health centers, many practices really think of physical health as very separate from behavioral health and mental health and social and, and, um, and uh, substance use disorder treatment. And that means that people need to make separate appointments and that their clinicians can't see or talk to each other that there's no sense of cohesion across those two spaces. And so for us, that next sort of key component of the model is that integration at the point of need of physical and behavioral health. And then the third key unlock for us is, is addressing social barriers, which we call social care, but providing social care. It's recognizing that, um, you know, there are the traditional social drivers of, of health that we talk about, um, many of which are almost geographically defined, place-based. Um, our people, our members live in communities that are hard to access through transportation, where they don't have great access to healthy, nutritious, and affordable food, um, where they may not have, you know, green, leafy, safe spaces to exercise outside, um, where they may not have access to great data coverage or to the, the, the income to buy um, internet and, and access services in those ways. But they're also struggling from loneliness, from trauma, from um, the the consequences of a life lived with, you know, exposure to systemic racism and all of its, um, all of its sequelae as well. And so addressing those social needs, understanding them first and then addressing them is another key point of leverage for us. And 
Um, we find a lot of value through um, through closing those social gaps with individuals as a means to help them um, achieve better health. Let's talk about that social care piece for a minute. There's many, many people on this call who are are passionate about addressing just what you described, all the elements of life that really feed into health beyond just a visit with a doctor. And you've had the benefit of really being on the front lines of delivering this kind of social care and seeing what really moves the needle. And so I wonder if you could give us any of your thoughts on on that piece, moving from the theories of social care to to action and what really what really matters to people, to patients yeah. on the ground. Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is to acknowledge that we are all, I think, collectively the community. So I say city block, but also all of us in this work, we're on a learning journey, right? Like the level of science and um, and best practice around social care is still very nascent. And so we all have to think of ourselves as innovating here and contributing to a body of work that will enable us to better understand what I like to describe as a sort of the dose-dependent relationship between social interventions and health outcomes. Um, and so when you take it from the sort of the meta level, right, like we all know and recognize that in order to thrive and in order to live healthy lives, individuals need um, basic services. They need a basic needs that needs, must be met, warm, safe place to sleep at night, um, sufficient nutritious, healthy food to eat, um, uh, the ability to move around your environment to access additional services, sufficient income that you can pay for all of the things that you need in order to be healthy, um, education such that you can understand health information and make reasoned choices for yourself. There's a whole host of social needs that enable health. What we also know is that um, those, those needs are um, very unequally met by a society that does not prioritize investment or historically hasn't universally prioritized investment in these common social goods. And as healthcare professionals and as healthcare organizations, we see the consequences of this most acutely and most expensively in the healthcare system. And I, you know, I say that this is this anecdote, you know, to, and it's not to be trite, but, you know, if you're, if you're one of our, our members and you're struggling with marginally how being marginally housed, you're, you know, every Friday night, not sure where you're going to sleep. Um, uh, it's, if you have enough money for a motel, it's dependent on whether you're able to raise that money through sex work or through um, panhandling or um, just a stroke of luck. Um, at 10 o'clock or at midnight on a Friday night, there's only one place really you can go where you are guaranteed that someone's going to act like you matter for a minute and you may get a place to sleep and a sandwich. And that's the emergency room. And so, so there's the most extreme example, which is a, a massive like lack of a social need, directly translates into healthcare cost and healthcare utilization. But then you you sort of you can map it all back, you know, even in less extreme circumstances. If you're a person who struggles with, you know, three or four chronic conditions, one of which is diabetes, another which is, is high blood pressure or um, or heart failure, and you've got to eat a specialized diet, but your ten dollars um, in in disposable income for the next two days isn't sufficient to buy you a healthy homemade meal, it's enough to get you a fast food um, uh, happy meal that has way more salt than you probably should, should have or more sugar, and you find yourself in the emergency room as a result, right? These are social problems that translate into healthcare, right? Um, the question, however, is not as simple when you look backwards and say, okay, does that mean that healthcare dollars should pay for healthy, nutritious food for everyone, should pay for housing for everyone? Um, in theory, yes, but in practice, we do not have the resources distributed in that way, right? So you then have to ask yourself, what are the interventions that we can pay for with healthcare resources 
that will make the most impact for people on the on on the healthcare side of their lives, recognizing that it leaves still gaps unmet, and that we have to partner more holistically and more broadly with um, social services organizations, with government, if we're really trying to sort of prevent as opposed to treat. And I mean, that's where, you know, we are learning and innovating at CityBlock. And the first recognizing that understanding where those gaps exist for our members, that's key. That's the first step. You got to understand it, you got to measure it and really see it in order to then intervene. And then you have to test and iterate. Um, for some folks who are struggling with marginal housing, um, supporting them to get access to a benefit that they qualify for, Section 8, as an example, or um, supportive housing if they're struggling with mental illness. Is, is a sufficient and, and actually very um, uh, efficient and effective use of healthcare dollars. For others, it might be putting them up in an emergency um, respite unit um, that we actually pay for. For others yet, it might be helping them repair a relationship with a loved one so they can move in with them. Um, and so thinking about the ways that we sort of titrate the dosing of social interventions to get the maximum outcome for the people whom we're serving, while recognizing that we exist in an ecosystem that, that ultimately entirely has to be reformed in order to get upstream enough to prevent the issues that we're treating um, is, is a really nuanced and I think important part of the way we approach the work. Very interesting. Um, I, I want to spend a little bit more time talking about the care model a little later, but uh, for now I want to shift over to talking about CityBlock, the business, uh, but I also want to invite everybody who's on the call to um, drop your questions in the chat. We're going to leave time on this call uh, for all of your questions and you can start leaving them now and once we get to that portion, I'll call on you and ask you to come off mute and ask it yourself. So be ready for that. So you can start leaving your questions now. Uh, my question is, when we were talking before this call, you mentioned that CityBlock has grown uh, a lot and I think has more than a thousand employees, you said. But you started, I believe, yeah. with three co-founders uh, back in the day uh, and, you know, I kind of, I wonder if you, that's some rapid growth. And I wonder if you could go back to, to when it was just the three of you and give yourself a piece of advice now, knowing what you know, uh, looking from a, from a business standpoint, um, what would you tell yourself? Oh my goodness. I mean, as, as you all know, the road to being a founder or, or the path of being a founder is littered with what a coulda, shoulda, right? Like, there's a million, I, I could write a book. There's a million things that I would wish I knew now, then that I know now. Um, you know, I think the, um, probably the key things that I would, would remind myself of is that time really flies and um, establishing solid foundations for the business upfront and taking the time to do that intentionally will always yield dividends, even though you're, you're feeling under pressure to move and to grow. Um, you know, one of the most valuable things we did, and it came a little bit later in our life cycle as a company, was to spend time um, on a company-wide exercise where we built our values. And, um, and that has been so valuable, but it was, it was months of workshopping and wordsmithing and town halls and real conversations with people that we did not do, you know, in the first six months or a year of the company's founding. Um, but the one we got to was like just so foundational and so valuable. And so things like that, I think recognizing that um, we are not always, as, we're not ever, and it's certainly I could in the future not be as fortunate as to, as to have the success that we've had. You never know, but build as though you're going to be wildly successful. Build as though you're going to exceed your wildest dreams 
And that means that you need to be prepared to, to endure and you need to be prepared to have um, uh, artifacts and institutions and systems and processes and structures that can grow with you. Um, that would be the biggest piece of advice at every point is to, is to really do this as though it's going to be here for a long time. And that's hard when, when we, many of many folks, like I can't include myself, I'm not a Silicon Valleyite really, but you know, sort of move fast and break things is the sort of the, the, the quintessential adage. I, I don't actually subscribe to that. Um, and I would really, um, I think, urge folks to, to really think about the places where you want to, in some instances, overbuild relative to your stage um, in order to, to create the foundations that you can, you can grow with. I'm sure you're being pulled in a thousand different directions with your current role as CEO. How do you build in the time to make sure you still are using that thinking, that you are building solid foundations and not just uh, working and doing now that you're in such a high pressure role? Um, for me, it's it's about two things. It's about sort of managing myself, um, just sort of personally, internally, like making sure that I'm like well rested, that I have, you know, I opt, I know how I work. I'm much better in the mornings. That I really, I'm very, uh, very careful and sort of guard quite closely my morning time so that I can use that as productive thinking and working time. So really understanding your rhythms um, and making sure that you're effectively optimizing yourself for the work. Um, is, is thing number one, um, you know, the sleep, exercise, food, all those things are really, really, really important in the self-care. And the other thing is, um, is being really, really um, intentional about not just for myself, but for my team, carving out um, real time to think and to, 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 to be strategic. Um, and that requires being exposed to new ideas. It requires being exposed to old ideas. It re requires being exposed to the business, um, to seeing what happens on the ground, making sure you're really connected to the team and what the tone and tenor and energy of the organization is and where you're having impact, that you're rooted in the data on performance, because that is all fodder for strategic thinking. And so making sure that you're sort of constantly, you know, being exposed to stimuli, both external and internal, that will, um, that will promote strategic thinking um, and then having the time to actually do it is, has been really key. And so, you know, I, I often will roll my eyes when I get asked to go to a conference or something I never want to go. I would much rather stay and you know work work with my team and focus looking inwards. But every time I do, you you get exposed to new ideas, to new people, to new um, to a sense of what's happening in the broader ecosystem. Like making sure to have that both external and internal stimuli really well balanced, I think, is critical to ensure that you have the right ingredients for for good decision making. When you came over, when you took over as CEO, you penned an editorial that I, I read on, on Medium, and you said that in uh, 2020 hit you like a ton of bricks, that COVID-19 really uh, caused you to have to really rethink um, city block health, kind of your, your care models, et cetera, and kind of recalibrate. And I wonder if you could sort of talk about what you observed and kind of how you went about recalibrating due to the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, who here didn't feel hit by a ton of bricks like, in 2020? Um, it was it was a really trying times, you know. And I think um, uh, on many levels, um, not to mention the personal levels, um, but for us, it was a really humbling and also very transformational moment for our business. Um, at the time, our largest market and our largest um, population of membership was in Brooklyn, New York. Um, those of you who were in or around New York remember what it was like in March of 2020 in New York. Um, uh, we were just completely overwhelmed immediately. And, you know, as a physician, first and foremost, who's been serving marginalized populations my whole career, 
um, as a person of color living in a you know majority low-income community in Crown Heights where I live, it was very clear from day one that this pandemic was going to disproportionately impact the the marginalized and the disenfranchised who happened to be our members. And so we we knew we had an imperative to like really really rethink our clinical model to make sure we could almost stand in the way um, and and prevent some of the just the suffering that we knew was going to happen to our members, um, to identify those who are most vulnerable as quickly as possible, to get to them as quickly as possible, to stay on top of the literature and the learnings, to make sure we had access to PPE and oxygen, that we were having the right conversations with family members, that we were equipping them with the tools to keep their loved ones healthy and safe while our hospitals were overflowing. Um, we, we were just like, just fully focus on saying we see this avalanche coming and we know that our folks are the most vulnerable people that, that exist in our society. How do we get to them first and how do we wrap around them as much as possible? And then at the, at the sort of the company level, you know, as, as, a, as a healthcare company whose um, uh, entire outcomes and business model is predicated on taking care of people and keeping them safe and out of the hospital, sick people, keeping them safe and out of the hospital, what did that mean for us when our key kind of modes of deployment were still very much in person um, and very much hands-on and continue to be to this day where we had healthcare workers who were potentially putting themselves in the line of fire, um, so to speak, um, in their duty to care for our members. When we had members who were too afraid or too frail or vulnerable to leave their homes and really shouldn't take visitors. When we had other members who were unable to socially distance because they were essential workers who needed to get on the bus or the subway and go to their job every day to keep our system and our society still going, even despite all of this. So what did it mean for us from a business perspective was a really big question. And we, I think in the, in, in the beginning, sensed and were geared for the idea that, um, that a model like ours and a company like ours that disproportionately focuses on, on marginalized communities and that has a, the ability to pivot and innovate very quickly would find itself in, in much higher demand even than it was before in the pandemic. Um, but I don't know that we were prepared for just how much higher demand, right? And so, um, you know, it was it, 2020 was really transformational for CityBlock. We grew significantly. Um, we saw the, the value that, of, that a value-based private care community-oriented provider has in an ecosystem where other primary care practices were shutting down. They were worried about making payroll. They couldn't keep their doors open because their entire business model was predicated on people coming to them, sitting in a room full of other sick people to get care. And absent that, they couldn't make their business work. Whereas we were, were value-based, we're oriented around a population. We have the resources to say, okay, they can't come to us, we're gonna go to them. We need to deliver tablets to people so they can get on online and, and video visit. We can do that. We need to invest in, in a whole new clinical delivery system with paramedics and EMTs and people. We can do that too. Um, and so we were really, I think, very well positioned to grow and to, to take on the care of more people in the midst of the pandemic. Um, but um, but it, was, it, was really, really, um, it was really a challenge. And we, I think, rose to that challenge very much um, driven by our commitment to serving our members and to ensuring that we were providing the very best possible care for them at one of the hardest times for, for our society. Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, let's go to a couple questions from the audience. We've got a, a couple that have come in. Let's start with uh, Bentley Adams. Uh, well, you can come off mute, give us 30 seconds about uh, your business and then ask your question. Great. Thanks. Thanks, Lynn. And, and thanks, Dr. Ajayi. I, I think it's, or do you go by Toyin? Is Toyin better? You tell me. Toyin's good. Toyin's good. You're good. 
just want to always be respectful of those physicians in our world. But um, I, I love the story and, and, and I love your purpose and I love your passion. And I always, I always think with founders, one of the most important things to me, I guess, first, what way is ways a mindful eating app that helps people find peace in their relationship with food and their body. Um, so with founders, I'm always curious, you know, what was the original vision of what you set out to do? How specific was it? And how did that come to be? Or how did that change along the way? And I think you answered it a little bit in there, but I'd love to hear kind of what the, the human experience of being a founder of this amazing company has been, because I think that you're, you're definitely making impact. So I'm curious how you, where you started from and where you're at now in your own words. Thank you. Um, you know, the, the vision was actually very specific, partly because, you know, I, I grew up in healthcare, not in a venture. I, this is my first startup. So I'm a total novice to that side. But, um, but had spent many years, you know, providing care and safety net hospitals and community health centers and, um, you know, doing street homeless work, um, really just seeing the ways in which our system fails to meet the needs of, of people who need it the most. And the vision was to create a scalable business case for providing a dignified and respectful experience of care for the most marginalized in our community. And to start that in Medicaid, so build a company that was fit for purpose for people who struggle with low income, in addition to all the other things that they have going on. Um, and, and, you know, it, it, it evolved, certainly it's evolved to much more specificity on the care model, to much more specificity in the ways in which social and behavioral and physical come together, um, to a much deeper understanding of what, you know, the healthcare ecosystem wants to purchase. Um, so there's a lot of uh, growth and learning that's occurred, but the vision was very specific about, you know, anchored in that experience. Like I want people, I want to prove, and we still to this day want to prove that it's possible to do things radically different and do it at scale um, because we believe that our true impact is going to be achieved when everyone else in the healthcare system behaves differently because we finally like call the lie, like we call the lie. It is not, you know, the best we can do is not a 10 minute visit that feels dismissive of a person who's in distress. The best we can do is not an emergency room that will see you when your foot needs to be amputated, but where you can't afford insulin to prevent the amputation. Like that is not the best we can do. We can do better than that. And like, we wanna prove that we can do better than that. Not like out of the generosity of someone's sort of philanthropic giving, but actually with a business that can scale and sustain. Um, and so that, that ultimately is the thing for us. And, um, and we continue to just eat away at this, you know, with a, with a just a, a sort of like maniacal focus on the population and the experience that our members have of, of the care they receive with us in order to prove that, that we can do way better for these folks. Thanks for the question, Bentley. I love that, that maniacal focus uh, that we can do better. Uh, let's go to David Sarabia. Uh, his question, he's from In Recovery. So come off mute, David. Hey, guys, how are you? Hi, Tone. Nice to meet you. I'm a big fan of City of Light. Um, yeah, and, you know, having been in New York, having been homeless in New York, actually, uh, completely very much connected to your mission. And, and I appreciate everything you guys do. Um, yeah, and that revolving door is so true. And, you know, you, you hack things out when you're homeless. I was uh, taking the A train because mm -hmm. You know, longest longest ride you can take to sleep like an hour and a half uninterrupted, all the way to Far Rockaway. Uh, so my question really is, you know, how do you how do you continue to be so high touch? I'm sorry, my my company in recovery um, 
just in a quick nutshell, uh, we are helping treatment providers or treatment the treatment industry become more data driven and really create a, a much more uh, scalable path to reintegration for people. Um, so for for your company and, and how you guys are so high touch, how do you continue to be like this when when you know you obviously have to answer to investors, you now have to scale the company, you have to eventually be more systematic, right? Versus like you said, you know sometimes you. You, you don't need a 10 minute visit. You need a one hour conversation about that person's issues. And how do you guys leverage government relationships as well for, for something like this? It seems like really, really critical, right? To, to engage with social services and government services, so on with this. Yeah. Thank you so much for the question. And thank you for sharing your experience. Um, I just, and you know, I think, I think that obviously your experience will inform so much of how you build. And so I just hope that you bring that into your story as well. Um, you know, the how do you scale the high touch has been the key question for us and the key unlock, right? It's not, we, we, and that's where technology is so valuable. Tech doesn't replace the human contact, but tech can make it so much more efficient and, and effective and valuable. And so here's some examples. Um, if I'm going to do outreach to do, try find somebody and try to engage them in, in the healthcare um, system that we're providing, um, if I'm armed with information about what their needs might be, with suggested guidelines about how I might interact with them, with um, the intelligence that they may not be home to answer the phone, you know, at four o'clock in the afternoon because they're working. Um, that enables me to be way more targeted and way more effective in the way that I outreach a member. The next thing, of course, is then like, what do I do for people and with people? How do we um, essentially scale, um, you know, mo most of the most high performing, we still do this at CityBlock, the most high performing interdisciplinary teams do what we call case conferencing or huddling. Are we get an interdisciplinary team together, um, the best minds possible of our you know, nurse practitioner, our physician assistant, our community health partner, our behavioral health specialist, our physician, our medical director, everybody gets in the room and talks about what's going on for a specific member and tries to figure out and prioritize what we can do to help improve their health outcomes. And then brings that member into the conversation as we kind of build their um, uh, personalized care plan. And oftentimes it feels like you're bouncing, you know, it's like, it's a trial and error. This is a person, they're always in the emergency room. They're always struggling. Their blood sugar is always super high. Okay, well, let's try a home visit. Let's try getting them home delivered meals that have, you know, less cars. Let's try this information thing. Let's try connecting them to so-and-so. There's actually like, we can start to aggregate best practices and shortcut some of the, the, the wrong doors we go down when we're trying to figure out what, what the most high value set of interventions would be for a person and in what sequence. And so how do you use data and our experiences and our care pathways and our tooling to create decision support for team members so that they don't have to try every idea that everyone else has tried before, um, before they get to the right one. That's another example of the ways in which you can scale high touch. The final piece is of course, just recognizing that, um, that even at maturity, some people need an hour long visit. And if that hour long visit with a therapist or with a community health partner prevents one hospitalization, you've paid for it 20 times, 40 times over. Um, and so there is a real like ROI on time in the community, um, time spent on preventive care, time spent on care coordination, time invested in primary care, time invested in mental health and addiction treatment services. Like, the ROI is immense because the counterfactual is the emergency room, which also doesn't solve the problem. It just creates a, you know, a short-term 
Band-Aid that is incredibly expensive. Um, and we really recognize that and, and really strive to make sure that our members um, get access to the time, the time that they need as well. Appreciate the question, David. Uh, you mentioned something, Toyin, uh, about the huddle, which is such a, an awesome idea of just being able to bring in these, this multi, multidisciplinary team to address a whole person. And it made me think of a question I had, which was about City Block um, uh, evolving to, to virtual, to moving to virtual, uh, which I know happened through COVID. You had major offices in Brooklyn, and now I believe you're all virtual. And I, and I wonder if you could maybe tell us a little bit about that journey and about some of the, the challenges, maybe some of the strategies you've employed to make that work within the model and culture of your company. Yeah, so our care team um, uh, members, and so folks who are providing direct care to our members, um, continue to huddle um, uh, often in person, um, but also virtually. And then we continue to see our members in person. So we've retained you know, our bricks and mortar hubs, our community hubs, um, in, in the markets that we operate in, that members can come in and receive care at, that our team members can, um, you know, spend time, time together with. But our corporate office um, closed during the pandemic and has remained closed. Um, and that has created a, as a whole, again, I, I'm like, we're certainly not unique in experiencing this, um, uh, a whole set of both challenges and opportunities for sure as we, as we sought to, to ensure that that, like, high-touch and interpersonal um, uh, set of relationships are preserved throughout the team. Um, and so, so we, we continue to, of course, um, like, like most companies use, use a lot on, um, uh, of, of, of virtual interaction, um, uh, with our members and with our team members, we, we give them the opportunity to, to be in person as well as to, to engage virtually, um, depending on what folks need. And, um, and it's been a, a learning journey for sure. Um, but I think we've, we've really demonstrated like many have that, that we can do a lot um, virtually, and we can um, and we can certainly certainly uh, collaborate, partner, communicate well in really effective and efficient ways using virtual modalities. And so that continues to be something that we've really taken advantage of. Uh, what's unique about your your situation, like you said, everyone's dealing with this same situation, but uh, you're dealing with it at a, a level and scale that is unique and maybe has given you a chance to learn new lessons more quickly. Maybe uh, if you were to give advice to a founder on this call who maybe was struggling with um, uh, running virtual teams, keeping, keeping a team's culture strong in the face of um, remote work, uh, virtual teams, any advice you'd give? Um, I think uh, start building opportunities for, um, for async, for non-meeting related connections. Um, and so we, we use uh, um, an add-on or an app in, in Slack um, to create donuts, like little virtual kind of copies um, for people. Um, whatever the, the, the tools are that you seek to use, make sure to, to incorporate them um, and, and give people an opportunity to just get to know each other, um, get to bond, get to hear each other's story, um, uh, build relationships. I think that's key. I think the other is, um, is, the flip of that, I think, is don't don't underestimate the value of in-person time in the midst of virtual, right? And so, trying to create opportunities for offsites, opportunities for people to really get together in person, um, uh, is so important. And sometimes I've, I've experienced where what it just feels like we're kind of everything's kind of funky and things feel kind of hard. Um, sometimes just getting together and like city block, we we tend to 
dance and eat and have fun together and like having a little party or having a little gathering just changes the energy um, and, and gets people kind of back into this uh, appreciation um, and the gratitude that we feel for getting to work with such incredible people. Um, and, and that can get, get, can get worn off if you're constantly, you know, in these transactional meetings um, without the opportunity to really build those relationships around them. I think that's very wise. Uh, let's go to another question from the chat. Uh, Marco Pashina from Akenta. If you can come off mute, uh, tell us what you do in a sentence and then ask your question. Hi, Torin. Well, thanks so much for finding the time to, to chat with us. I really appreciate it. And so I'm, I'm Marco Pasquina. I'm the founder of Akenta Health. We are a virtual clinic specializing in cardiovascular disease prevention for underserved communities. So I think it's, I, I really appreciate what you did with CityBlock. We mainly focus on the Hispanic community. We're based out of Los Angeles. And I have a couple of questions for you. Some of them you answered, but the main question is, what was your initial go-to-market strategy? I know that you told me that you were working with, especially Medicaid. That's that's something we're really interested in doing. And how did you how did you get to working with them in the beginning? And also, how do you then also got the the attention of managed care organizations, with which I know that sometimes they tend to be a bit close with the network they have. Yeah. So we started um, uh, going directly to managed care organizations um, and, and to your point, really seeking to prove the value prop to them of contracting with us and of partnering with us um, to care for their members. Um, I think it helped a lot that, you know, if, when, you're, when you're focusing on um, members with the most complex needs um, and folks who have not historically had access to care um, it helps a lot because very few payers, even today, you know, they get their doors pounded down on solutions for X or Y, but very, very rarely do they experience, you know, uh, an organization, a venture-backed startup saying, no, no, we want to go care for the folks that nobody else wants to care for, the folks who are really, really struggling, who may be hard to engage and hard to reach, but we really believe we can do something different there. Um, and so, so really, you know, just sort of focusing on that value proposition to, to manage care organization is key. And then recognizing that it takes time. I mean, the deal cycle for a, for a you know, value-based managed care contract is a long time. And so you have to be patient. You have to have many, many sort of irons in the fire, um, working on a number of different sort of paths, um, uh, but, but they do eventually convert. It just takes time. Um, and so those are, the, those are the kind of big things that I would, um, that I would sort of flag, you know, flag for you. Thanks. And I have just one quick follow-up question on that. It's how, in your first meetings with investors when you were early on, right? How do you, I know, I mean, I experienced some, with some investors that you're like, you know, there's, I don't know, some investors are like, is this venture back, backable? Yes or no. And I feel like they're like, they, they kind of get confused on the fact that, yes, it's a company that does have a big social impact, but it also has like a valuable business model behind it. So how did you kind of approach this, this conversations with very early stage investors? Because we are pre-seed seed stage. So we're just starting out. Yeah. I think a couple of things. I think, um, you know, showing the, showing the business model and showing, showing how the economics scale over time um, is really important. I think the second thing is, is the TAM. Um, so many, particularly non-healthcare investors, are not used to the TAM 
like how just how big the market is in healthcare and how big the market specifically is in, in you know, government programs and underserved communities. Um, there is just a massive, massive opportunity to scale businesses that are focused on, you know, folks on Medicaid, folks who are duly eligible for Medicare and Medicaid across the country. And so those two, I think, key points are really important. Um, and, you know, the, I think the final piece is, is, is giving them you know, some visibility and confidence that, that there is not a conflict between your social mission and your business. And I think for us, that alignment between our social mission and the business is so critical. Um, we don't make money at City Boss. We are not successful unless we're able to meaningfully improve costs in the healthcare system by improving healthcare um, and the healthcare experiences and the healthcare outcomes of our members. And so, you know, I think one of the things that I think sometimes gives investors pause is, like, is there going to be a trade-off between making money and, you know, doing the social thing? And to, to, to create the right alignment in your business, as you think about your go-to-market strategy, as you think about your overall corporate strategy between doing the right thing for the, for the cause and the population whom you serve and creating margin is so important. And it, you have to have that like locked and loaded from the outset um, in these businesses. And there's a real opportunity, I think, to, to sell and to, to make a case for, for why these are creative venture businesses, um, uh, if you can get those things right. All right, thanks so much. Appreciate that, Marco. Uh, let's go to another question. Let's go to one from Eliana Goldstein. Um, and she asks, oh, she says that her camera's cutting out. No problem, Eliana. She says, um, what's your mindset on building versus partnering when it comes to new healthcare service offerings for your members? Yeah, it depends on, on what, the, what the services are. It's a great question, Eliana. I think the first question I would ask myself is, is this core, is this a core capability for our business? Um, and is it differentiating or differentiated? Um, and if the answer is yes, then I would build, right? Um, uh, if this is core to the experience that your members have, it's core to your service offering, it's differentiating or differentiated, um, it's a key point of leverage, I would build. Um, however, you know, as you know, there are so many other services that people need and access. And some of these are commodities today in the ecosystem, um, or they're not, they're specialized, but there's four or five people who've been doing this for a while and they do it really well. Um, I think being focused enough to know exactly when you ought to build, um, which is, you know, sort of the criteria I described earlier, and also humble enough to not think you can build everything and, that, and to learn to partner is, is a really important lesson to learn in healthcare because there are so many adjacencies. You could provide, you know, a wonderful, um, you know, peer uh, data-informed coaching experience for um, I think I think somebody earlier was working on, on on helping people with healthy weight, and your folks are gonna at some point see a primary care doctor. They may see a therapist. They may um, you know need a tooth tooth pulled at the dentist. Like there's we touch the healthcare system in so many different ways that it would be ludicrous to try to own every step of the journey. Um, but recognizing where to partner and, and doing so well. Um, and discerningly, I think is really important. And then owning and really optimizing the places where you have to be differentiated, I think is just a key discipline. I love it. I love it. Let's go to Robbie Bustami from uh, Biotics AI. Robbie, you can come off mute. Hi, John. Thanks. Uh, thank you so much for uh, talking to us. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm a little sick, so uh, my voice is a lot of it. But um, so, uh, so my question is, so here at Biotics AI, 
uh, we've developed an AI-powered platform to help reduce the one out of two structural anomaly uh, misdiagnosis rate uh, by providing automated quality assurance, risk mitigation, um, AI-powered diagnostics, and um, time-saving uh, reporting-based capabilities. Um, at CityBlock, uh, you know, it seems like there's such a huge focus on quality and, and risk mitigation, um, both on the patient side and, and on the on the payer side, uh, with making sure that uh, the best possible quality of care is provided back to patients and, and that they have trust in their uh, in their health systems. Uh, have you seen use cases where AI technologies have been used to help provide and monitor and validate uh, the quality of care for patients and also for, for payers as well? Yeah, I think that's a, it's a really interesting question. I mean, we certainly see use cases for AI in our um, uh, in our model, um, you know, in helping us even just uh, segment and identify the different risk profiles of the members whom we serve. It's been really, really interesting for us to start to model out in much more um, with much more sort of nuance and um, and focus around who who those high risk folks are, um, and then making sure that they're getting what they need. Um, I'm very interested. I think it's to the earlier question about how do you scale um, high touch is, you know, how do you automate the things that are not, not important necessarily uses of, of people's time, but that need to, to happen? And how do you surface up um, the right next, best next step in terms of the care that people ought to receive? Um, so those are areas that we continue to see as potential for, um, for continuing to explore the value and the um, opportunity to, to invest in AI. I appreciate the question, Robbie. Um, we're getting towards the top of the hour. I want to give people a chance to share a, an insight. Uh, if you'd like to, to reflect back to, to Toyin and the group, something that you've learned that you appreciated, you can drop that uh, or your name into the chat. I want to make sure we have time. Uh, Toyin, I'm, I, I'd love for you to share kind of what's next for City Block Health. You've, you've given us sort of a, a recent traction and what you're excited about, but but what's coming in the next uh, year or two? Yeah, I think it's um, you know you've you've heard the the big picture, um, and um, and you know our mission and our vision is really to prove that you can do this at scale. And so, what's next? No surprise is that we continue to grow. Um, we continue to scale our impact. Um, entering new markets, new partnerships, serving more members, um, continuing to iterate on our learning and understanding about, you know, what all the, the right the right ingredients are to drive better outcomes for people, um, and and partnering in really thoughtful and creative ways with both managed care organizations as well as with other healthcare organizations to, to um, optimize the value that we can drive for our members. So, um, so continuing to disrupt and continuing to grow really is what's next for us. Um. I'm hoping you can give some advice to founders since I know you invest it as well. Uh, I know you you evaluate early stage startups and you really you meet uh, and mentor founders and CEOs. I'm going to try to wrap up. I'm going to try to roll up two of the questions in the chat and see what advice you might have for founders in terms of caring for their own mental health. Looking at Yair Saperstein's question from AvoMD, and then secondarily. Um, Ishmael's uh, question from Innovarex Global around early stage recruiting, recruiting top talent uh, early in the game, really getting them on board with your mission. So any advice for founders first about kind of um, taking care of themselves personally, mentally? 
Yeah, I think um, I think a lot of it's sort of pieces of advice maybe I sprinkled along earlier. First is like, you know, upfront, build as though you're going to be doing this for a long time. Again, build as though you're going to be wildly successful, right? And what does that mean to sustain yourself, not through one, two, three, four sprints when you're kind of flat out and getting no sleep, but like, what if this is a marathon? What if you get to keep doing this for a while and, um, and you get to continue to build and grow? Like, what does it look like to be sustainable for yourself? And it's going to be different for everyone, but I actually think that there are some key ingredients that are kind of universal. Um, first is really understand your own patterns, know when you work well, know how much sleep you need, make sure you get it, um, really carve out time for thinking. Um, exercise is key whatever you need to do to maintain your mental health and your poise, people will be looking to you to set the tone for the company. And so being able to just like, keep balanced and maintain your sort of your, your equipoise is just so critical. Um, those, those are just, just key. And no matter what happens, you know, there, there will be ups, there will be downs. Um, you know, don't, don't get too, too, too down about the downs and too up about the ups. I think helps a lot in maintaining that sort of balanced focus. This is going to be a long haul for sure. Um, and then in terms of building the team, I think, you know, looking for, um, especially in the early teams, people, again, who you can envision being on the journey a long time with. Um, so folks who are committed, who have high integrity, who are great communicators, who are committed to the mission and the vision, um, who are proven leaders and builders, um, would look for people who can scale with you and who you can scale with and who you want to spend many hours. Um, sometimes, you know, when you're, when you're on, a, on, a, on a downswing, working really hard with. Um, and so I think that, that those are the sort of key things, um, I think, that, that have really been helpful um, that I would recommend folks doing as, as you pursue your journey. Very nice. Um, there's enough time for a couple of greatest insights you can share uh, back to the group, kind of what you're hearing, what you're learning. And I want to call on, on Ismael from uh, Inovarex Global because uh, he brings a, an interesting uh, perspective to this. So uh, you can go ahead and come off mute and share. No, thank you, Logan. Uh, and really, thank you, Dr. Ajayi, for sharing a lot of thoughts that really resonated as a company. Uh, my background as a healthcare provider in the U.S., there's a lot of parallels that you mentioned in terms of marginalized groups or even rural communities in America that we saw an opportunity or, I guess, similarities in Africa in terms of, you mentioned the 10 minutes that you might spend in an you know, emergency doctor's office. Well, most people on the continent never make it to the doctor's office mm -hmm. in general because of barriers to care. And a lot of challenges that, you know, I'm glad that a lot of the strategies that you're mentioning, leveraging technology, because there's not a lot of doctors that are available. A lot of those things that we're, we are now trying to implement on the continent. And I think it helps that the USA has a safety net of being able to do business with government and agencies, which is a barrier in Africa. Uh, but I just wanted to say thank you, because I think so much of what you said is relatable on the continent. Uh, and it allows us to just kind of bridge the gap and transfer best ideas. So thank you. Thank you. Congrats on your startup. It sounds amazing. I mean, on that topic, Toyana, obviously you are hyper local with your focus. How do you think about, do you think about global impact and global health? You know, I grew up in global health, right? Um, I, I grew up actually in East Africa. My parents are from Nigeria. I spent most of um, my med school years thinking I was going to, um, you know, live and practice in, in, in uh, the developing world and probably in sub-Saharan Africa. 
um, and, and sort of built a lot of my skills um, and certainly my understanding and recognition and respect for community health workers and, um, and community-based models of care and participatory um, models of care, the understanding of the social drivers. Like I learned all of that in, in global health settings. Um, and, and I actually think that the, the lessons we can learn from other countries about how to um, transform our healthcare system here are profound. Um, if we can look past the sort of hubris and, um, and some of the, the stigma associated with that. Um, and so, you know, I do think about global impact. I actually, in some ways, think about the reverse global impact. There are so many things that I learned working in Sierra Leone, um, you know, ironically, that are valuable and translatable to, um, to serving Brooklyn communities. Um, and so I'm really interested in understanding how we, again, um, uh, prove it out here, and then I think we can scale from there. Um, but, but really figuring out how to make this thing scale and um, and consistent um, and and truly sort of disruptive to our healthcare ecosystem in the U.S. It's a plenty big job for now, um, and I think that there are lessons to be learned when we crack that knot and can can continue to scale beyond that. I love it. I love it. Um, we are getting close to the top of the hour. I want to make sure I give you the final word here, Toyin. Any final uh, parting advice for a panel of founders who really look up to the work you're doing, who are trying to innovate in health? Uh, or at various stages of development, facing some of these challenges, uh, what are your what are your parting words? Well, thank you. Um, uh, you know, I think I think folks are, I'm sure, feeling and um, and experiencing some apprehension about this moment in time. You know, we're seeing the data about funding being down for early stage startups across all the ecosystems. Um, uh, you know, the the sort of global economic um, climate I think can be daunting for many. And I would just say the best possible startups, um, the best startups to thrive in moments like this, right? Like, mm-hmm. and the, um, the work that you all do here will be really, really profound um, uh, in addressing a need in a market that will always have needs, um, always have needs. And that's critical, right? Like healthcare is one of those spaces that, um, that where there will always be demand. Um, and so you're, you're in the right sector um, you're actually in a moment in time that will push you to be better um, and to be more um, uh, more effective and more rigorous. And that's a good thing because we'll emerge out of this stronger. And so I would say keep your head up and, you know, continue to, 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 to build, continue to listen to the feedback that you're getting from the market more broadly. And um, and I know that, that success will come your way, no doubt. I appreciate that. Dr. Twain Ajayi, I think I speak for the group when I say we really appreciate your time today. Even more, we appreciate the time you've spent in building City Block Health, a company that we admire and uh, which we know is going to do a lot of good in the future. So we appreciate you and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for listening to Startup Health Now. Startup Health invests in health transformers around the world who are dedicated to achieving audacious health moonshots. If you want to learn how you can join this community of entrepreneurs, or if you want to connect with one of our 400 companies, go to StartupHealth.com. If you'd like to learn how you can invest in our Health Moonshot Impact Fund, go to HealthMoonshots.com. Thanks for listening to Startup Health Now. We'll be back again with another episode next week.